Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this weed. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hello, you're listening to The Stages Podcast, and I'm Peter Ayers. A new production of Wagner's Ring Cycle plays Brisbane in December, exclusive to the Queensland Performing Arts Centre. Audiences are invited to embark on an exhilarating adventure with men and maidens, gods and giants, dragons and dwarves, as greed and violence threaten to destroy the heavens and earth. A glimmer of hope rises from an unexpected source. Renowned singer Daniel Samigi has had a long association with the opera across many productions in opera houses around the globe. He joins Opera Australia for this exciting new production in the role of Voltan. King of the gods, god of light, air and wind. Daniel is based in New York City and is delighted to be back home and back on stage at a company with which he has delivered principal roles in over 30 productions. Stages recorded this conversation with Daniel Samigi in late September as he was commencing the intensive rehearsal period for the 15-hour epic opera that is Wagner's Ring Cycle. You know, when you walked in the room, we've had lots of great we stories. We can so do far, it again. Daniel. I can sound. I, <laughs> you can sound. I can fresh. sound spontaneous. You're a performer. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Samigi, uh, welcome to the Stages Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a it's a pleasure. Um, let's set the scene. We are. It's quite appropriate, I think. We're in the Wagner room at Opera Australia. I know. Do you think they planned that? I think they planned it. There's a lovely serendipity there, a synchronicity. Uh, Because you, of course, are in rehearsal for The Ring Cycle, uh, being presented by Opera Australia in Queensland in December. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, It's also very early in the morning, um, before your rehearsal. Yes. Tell me, what what, what might a, a rehearsal look like for you in The Ring? Well... For my role, which is Wotan, King of the Gods, or Boss of the Gods, if you will, uh, Wotan is one of two, I would say two anchor roles in the whole piece. I won't say leading role, because there are no small roles in Wagner. There are some short roles, but none of them are small, um, if you know what I mean. Um, Wotan is one of two anchor roles, along with Brunhilde, his daughter, and that means I have the weight of three of the operas. In Siegfried, there's less weight because that's about Siegfried. And that role is a monster. But I have three fantastic scenes in that opera. But basically, the story is driven by Wotan and his uh, faults, his uh, deficiencies in life. And Brunhilde carries the story through basically, as his daughter and his legacy through to the fourth opera, which I'm not in. Rehearsals uh, look like me arriving to rehearse at 10.30, and then I get a lunch break, and then I don't leave till 5.30, because if I'm not in one rehearsal, I'm in another. <laughs> it, it, um, obviously, it must be hard being a god, especially boss of the gods. But um, Oh, yes, it's a terrible burden, but, you know, someone's got to do it. Do you get a nice cosy? <laughs> Actually, very nice. The The... Thing is very spe- there's two costumes uh, I won't spoil anything but there's two versions of the same costume in different um, formats as he ages uh, and it's simple but spectacular mm. you've had a long association with Wagner's masterpiece uh, I have coming in and out of your career for the last uh... since 1998 when I sang the role of Hagen which is the villain of uh, Goethe Damerung, 
and he's really the motor of that piece. He, uh, the villain is usually the motor, because, you know, without, without that tension, what is there? Uh, so I got to do that role very young in 1998 in Adelaide when they first did their ring cycle. And since then, I also understudied some roles during that series. Uh, since then, I suppose I've done about 10 different ring cycles, uh, or usually in the roles of Hagen, Hunding, Fazolt, or Fafner, the base roles. And this is my first time being elevated to the role of Wotan. Uh, this should have happened two years ago, but COVID prevented that. Mm. But the first postponement, I was actually in the roles of Fazolt and Hagen. And then I was around Australia at the time and the management of the opera sought fit to promote me. And I said, yes, about time. No, no, uh, it's something I've dreamed and worked for towards since the beginning, actually. You, why wouldn't you? Mm. Well, I, I read that it, you, you were even looking at the music at age 19, I suppose, when you first well, started singing. Well, at Wagner, yes, my teacher said, you will sing all of this one day, just not yet. But there's no reason why you can't be looking at it from now, and then you'll be ready. <laughs> um, there's a lot of... Um, it's a quest opera, I would say. It's a bit like Game of Thrones, in a way. There are so many various characters that are all contributing to this narrative. Yes. Um you, it required you to research a lot of those Norse myths and legends, I uh, guess, just so you understand uh, who everybody you is. You know what? That might be a good ideal. <laughs> but, but when it comes to doing a story like that, and I've seen some actors interviewed recently who really, when asked how much research they did, they said none. Uh, what's the point? We're doing this story now. This is what we are doing. We're not doing that story, and it's different, mm. you know. And it's a different. The Nordic myths are not the same thing. Wagner altered those myths to suit his story, which is basically a, a recreation of certain elements and brought together in his way. And what he's made is really a Germanic Shakespearean epic. So, and it is on that level, you know, of the, the greatest Shakespeare, except it's in German and sung. <laughs> well, it seems to be an epic to write as well, because I believe Wagner took about 26 years to write the piece. Yes. Uh, he, well, yeah, that's right. And he took long breaks where he wrote some of his other masterpieces in between while I guess he was uh, thinking about the music. Because you can hear you can hear the music develop. And it, like in Goethe Damerong, some of the harmonies are really alarming compared to what had been in the beginning of his... Uh, vocal writing process back with the Flying Dutchman and things like that which were much more standard um, appro almost approaching I won't say German operetta but definitely with that um, kind of feeling with a bit more rumpty tum kind of music so he was percolating during those breaks ah he sure was <laughs> yes so, so how would you describe the music uh, it, it's it's well I'm is it easily I, accessible well, yes. I mean, if you like, a, if you like a great movie like uh, something that um, George Lucas or Steven Spielberg has done, you'll love the music because it's. If Wagner had been alive 50, sixty years later, he would have been the greatest film composer, the first great film composer. Mm. Um, it really is an under an underscore for the for the story, and the story is actually very simple. It's a, and um, it's it, and and it's laid out like a soap opera to me. Uh, he also would have been a good TV producer because the scenes are set up so that you have exposition in a scene and there's a lot of repetition but then you go to another scene and then which is like you know cut to commercial go to another scene and then interval happens then you come back and pick up the other scene where it had left off or a little bit later because there's been the other intervening scene. It's very, it's very much like a soap opera with a v fantastic soundtrack. Well, indeed, um, there's a sequence, The Ride of the Valkyries, which is perhaps the best-known piece of music from the piece, which has been used, I think it was Apocalypse Now, wasn't it? Uh, among many things, yes, but that was sort of the most... That's sort of what brought it to popular attention, I think, that mm. piece of music, and it's great. It's fantastic, you know. Um, very rousing. So, so what or who are the Valkyries? They're Wotan's daughters, right. and they're his, they're his warrior chiefs, and he sends them out to 
collect the, the dead heroes and bring them to Valhalla. It's like a cemetery in a way. It's a bit gloomy, but <laughs> it's like a, a war memorial, a war hero cemetery. Right. Yes. So, so what is the ring, the, the ring of Nibelung? That is a gold ring. Uh, and this is where... So does it have parallels to Lord of the Rings? Well, yes. I th Tolkien, I think, took a lot of inspiration from the Wagner. Uh, uh, this gold ring is forged out of a lump of gold that Alberich, uh, a dwarf, uh, can we say dwarf these days? A little person, um, uh, has found... He's, he's in the river, Rhine, uh, with these three lovely mermaid-type ladies and... He's a little bit uh, amorous of them, I think, and he's just playing around with them, and they're teasing him because he, they're not attracted to him at all. He says, oh, won't you please go out with me? And they say, no. And then there's this piece of gold there. He says, what's that? And they said, oh, this this is uh, the Rhine, the Rhine gold, right? And uh, it, it transpires that if he can forge a ring out of that gold, he will have unlimited world-dominating power. And uh, that's Wotan hears about this in scene two. Um, and he says, I've got to have that ring. And that's where the troubles, that's where the fun and games start. <laughs> the conflict. Yes. <laughs> there are four parts to the opera, or this epic opera. Yeah. Uh, das Rheingold, Die Valkyrie. Die Valkyrie, yeah. Um, Siegfried and Gotterdammerung. Goethe Dammerung. Goethe Dammerung. You've got the umlaut over the O. Okay. Goethe Dammerung. Yeah, but that's all right. Well, I knew what you meant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a novice. I'm a novice. Yes, and and a lot of people are. And just go for it. Don't be afraid of it. Just go for it. You know, we'll only, I'll only correct you lightly. <laughs> well, well that's, uh, that, uh, that brings me up to a, a lovely segue into singing in different languages. Yes. Also, were you a linguist at school? or no. or This has become part of your occupation yeah. to, to learn a new language when you're, you're singing in whatever language. Yeah, learning a language, that's a bit far. I mean, uh, if I were to be in Italy or Germany, I could, after, after all these years, I could get by. But I wouldn't really say I uh, could be an academic uh, lecturer or anything like that. Uh, so I, you learn, learn the school phonetically then, do you? Well, people do. Right. And, you know, over the years you pick it up. You pick up what it is. And then you pick up the uh, the lilt of the language, etc. And there's no better way to do that than going to those countries and immer immersing yourself, really, for that. Because, you know, you don't have to speak a language to sing in it. It is what it is. You learn it. And, yeah, as you say, phonetically. And you just repetition and you learn that. That doesn't mean you can speak the language. Uh, but you could certainly garner the construction of the language over time. And it's very difficult to learn a language as an adult. Mm. Oh, yeah. very much so. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Uh, you have a, a Hungarian background. Yeah. Did you learn Hungarian as a child? Uh, my father was born in Budapest right. and came here to Australia in uh, 13 years old. You say Budapest. I've heard Budapest. Yes, but I'm being... I'm being Australian. <laughs> Budapest. Well, I Budapest. Just, well, I got, got a Gutudumarang wrong. I've stuffed yeah. that up Oh, too. yeah, you did. Um, but that's all right. But Budapest. Yeah. Yes, Budapest. Hmm. That's correct. Yes. Oh, thank God. And my name, my name, my name actually, would correctly pronounced would be Shumeg. But who's, who's, who can know that? So, you know, we just sort of simplified it when I was young. and Or well, I did. Yeah. And... Uh, there you go. Uh, ah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, you, your question about my father, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so Hungarian. So did you, was that spoken in the in the household? No, not in our house, no. but in his parents' house, yes, because uh, they also came. Um, and apparently, I'm told, until about five years old, I was very fluent in Hungarian, speaking and understanding and existing whenever I'd go to their house, which was often... Because, you know, my parents were a young working family. And uh, so my grandparents would look after me a lot. And apparently I was right in there with the Hungarian. But um, I don't remember. I remember vaguely being in their house a lot, but not, not the communication part. And my grandmother, who spoke English, but was such a heavy Hungarian accent. And my grandfather was a bit better. But... Um, 
apparently when I went to primary school, I lost all that. Or, yeah, primary school, I lost all that. But two years ago, three years ago here in Australia, I sang Bluebeard's Castle for Opera Australia in Hungarian. And the Hungarian lady who was the language coach on the production said, I explained my situation and she said, and I don't, I don't speak Hungarian. I had to learn it phonetically. But she said, well, you know, I'm going to say that's probably 96% accurate, uh, which is amazing. And obviously it's somewhere in your DNA and mm. your blood mm. because you've just picked it up so quickly and it's would take very little effort with a longer period to get that absolutely perfect. So I was really um, sort of gratified by that. Are there many operas sung in Hungarian or, or written uh, by Hungarian composers? Um, yes, yeah. but not, ma not many, right. but there are some. And, uh, but I'm not really familiar with them. Yeah. You should put Zoltan Kapathy on your, uh, your list of roles <laughs> to play. <laughs> nice little cameo. Yes, in the room I know. Pop out, dance with Eliza at the ball. Well, you know, I, musical theatre is my guilty pleasure. I would love to do musicals. Well, you've done Sweeney Todd. That's, and that's the only one I've done professionally. Really? Yes. And that was a joy. Absolute joy. That was in 2019 here in Sydney and Melbourne with Anthony Wallow and Gina Riley, which was also a joy. Is it difficult to, to make that move, do you think? Do people just see you as an opera singer yeah. and, and don't uh, think of musical theatre as a... Well, opera singing, the, the act of producing an operatic sound is... Um, not what they want on a Broadway stage. It's too much. It's just to overblown. So for me to sing in a musical theatre, oh, Judge Turpin can take that with some reduction, and can as can the role of Sweeney, I think. But um, although it's more declamatory, but uh, they don't want that sound through their microphone systems. Uh, so. You have to take all, really have to take all the weight out of the voice, which then could take all the colour out of the voice. And certainly then flipping back into opera would be difficult, I think, after a long run of doing that. Now, having said that, I'd love a crack at it. <laughs> well, it's interesting to observe uh, Paolo Sot. Um, Paolo, yeah. Yeah, yeah doing um, South Pacific and, uh, and Juliet. Yes. And currently on Broadway. And, yeah, I think he's Billy Flynn in Chicago. Yes, um, and he does a lot of cabaret nights too at the Carlisle, Carlisle Room, etc. So has he moved into music theatre, do you think? Or is he still well, that's, I'd say that's his bread and butter, because right. that Anne Juliet he's doing, I know Paolo, mm. that Anne Juliet has been going a long time now, and South Pacific went for years, and then he goes off and does operas in between. Sounds yeah. good, sounds good. Oh, he has a great life. <laughs> uh, so uh, Cameron McIntosh, Michael Castle, John Frost, uh, any of you listening, Daniel would like to do a musical. And I have one in mind, which I can't talk about right here. Oh, really? But um, I'm oh. going to get cracking on it. Oh, let me know off mic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, no. I mean, this is, this is not the one I'm referring to because right. I don't, haven't heard of any productions of it about to have. I would love to do Fiddler on the Roof or oh, something. Of course. That of would course. be a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, and that was in the opera company's repertoire for a long time, wasn't it? Well, yeah, 40 years ago, yeah, they yeah. did it with Hayes Gordon. That's when I was starting out here. They did that a lot. Yeah, and it was great. So you're a Sydney boy. Yeah. Um, Bondi? Born in Rosebay. Right. Moved to Bondi young. Right. Yeah. yeah. So sun, sand and surf, was that part of your childhood? It, it was. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Not that anyone would ever accuse me of being uh, sporty, but uh, <laughs> I grew up on the beach and we had, a, dad had a boat. We were always on the harbour on his boat. Uh, so it was always the water. Love the water. And what were the artistic influences? No, zero. Zero? You didn't go to the theatre or...? I did. They, you, you, but you discovered that I took myself own. to the theatre as a kid. Yeah. I saved my money and bought tickets. Back when you could send, send the money in and they'd send you a ticket back in the mail, I would put cash in the envelope, uh, which was probably risky. Someone could have just stolen the envelope. But that's how it was done. It was right? much before, more... Before ticketing oh, systems? Oh, life was so honest computers. back then. Yeah. I'd put the money and coins into the envelope and send off for my tickets. I... Went to see Annie five times right. in Oklahoma. Like There's another times. role, Daddy Warbucks. Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. Happy to shave your head. Uh, let's, it depends on the contract. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I would, I would 
take myself off to the theater all the time. Mum did, mum did take me to some things as a kid and that's what got me hooked. So, uh, five years old and stuff. What was, what was the first show was some pantomime, out for you? Some pantomime, pantomime she right. took me to. Kids, a kid's pantomime and I don't know where exactly. Uh, but obviously it was not far from East Suburbs or C uh, CBD. Uh, and the birthday children were invited on stage to participate in a, it was a, like a fire scene. I remember this very vividly. I was five. Uh, where there was a, a fire set up on stage, like a barbecue type thing. And I, you, we got on the stage and it was there with all the fake rocks, which were, you know, paper mache with the new, and I saw everything behind. I saw, I saw where the magic wasn't happening <laughs> and the back of the proscenium arch. And I thought, wow. Oh, and how they made the fire was like with um, a light with uh, orange um, cellophane. Cell no, not cellophane. The, 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 those, those light, those light changing color sheets of plastic. Yeah. What do you call those? Uh, a scrim or a, I know, um, it's a piece of plastic that's orange and yeah. they put it over the light and everything's orange, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, um, a filter, not a filter, it's a, um, <laughs> go, go over Edit. No, yeah. <laughs> somebody listening knows exactly what we mean. It's a, um, yeah, one of those. A cell, a... Um... I'll never forget what's his name. <laughs> um, a cell. A cell, a coloured cell, a gel. A gel. Gel! That's oh my is. God, we got there. Yes, we got there. A gel. <laughs> my God. And um, then someone was off with some plastic, making the noise of the fire, going... Mm. Just rubbing the plastic together. I thought, oh my God. Mm. I, my life was changed then. One of my favourite quotes is that theatre is a beautiful lie. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah. So what about scratching the, the performance itch? Um, I, I read that you uh, became involved with Rocktail Opera Company. Oh, that was uh, much later. It was later on, was it? Yeah, so it was like when I was 19. Did you do community theatre? or? Well, I did this thing at the Bondi Pavilion Theatre when I was in like seventh class called Effalumpa Wampum. It was a children's play. Mm. And I had the child star, the child star role which was not really very big, I think, but it seemed enormous to me, where I had to sit on a stool and read Once Upon a Time sort of opening and then make another appearance in the second half. And I would do... I don't know how long that run was for, but I do remember it vaguely, uh, having been pulled out of school to do it, probably on Wednesday matinees, I guess. Uh, and so it was seventh class. Then there was nothing. I was dreaming theatre, watching, watching MGM musicals when I could on TV. Of course, those Sunday matinees. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, Bill Collins. and yeah. Remember him? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Golden yeah. Years of Hollywood. Yeah. That was my, that was what I loved. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, a wonderful education too. You know, you, you can recall any of those shows now. Um, yeah. Which the current generation or the generation before don't know that wonderful historical. Uh, no. Because it's, just, it's deprived from theater. them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, um, I don't know how heavily arts are, arts are taught in schools now. Yeah. I would only be a professional musician because of my high school music department. Only. Otherwise, I would never have had the lead-in to find the way to do it. Or, or the spark. So... Is that where you started singing? Perhaps in choirs or... So there was nothing after Effalumpawampum yeah. until sixth class. So that's like, what, a few couple of years, right? Yeah. And then, I don't know how it came to be, but um, there was going to be an inter-school inter, inter production of Jesus Christ Superstar at, performed at the Dover Heights Boys High School. And I was cast in the role of Caiaphas at 12 years old. Wow. Right? Yeah. And I thought... Had, had your voice broken by then? Well, my voice was kind of always, always different right. from the other kids. <laughs> um, so, and it was totally appropriate in that uh, circumstance that I should do that part. And I remember it was great fun. And next year when I went to high school, which was at Waverley College up in uh, near Bondi Junction, I discovered they did an annual school musical. So I was in heaven. I thought, oh, I can do this, do more of this. Great. 
but during high school, I was doing all the music classes and I loved it. I just took to it immediately and they, they all saw that I had a, a, a gift. So I was only encouraged to do everything I could along those lines. And this was a very sport and military in terms of cadets uh, centric school, Christian Brothers. Um, and I was exempted from all that. So I was even happier. <laughs> I didn't have to go to sport, didn't have to do the cadets because I was on the music thing. And they had a very well looked after and funded music department. And this uh, dynamic four foot, well, I don't, what's, I don't know what it is in meters. Sorry, everyone, I live in America. Uh, four foot five Polish woman ran the music department and she was fantastic for me. And um, what was her name? Hanka Zawodnik. Great name. Yes. Who I discovered later also was Jewish, as I was. And uh, I was one of 11 Jewish boys in this Christian Brothers school. And I didn't find that out till later, too. That's another story. Um, so um, uh, I did these school musicals, or the first one at least. I thought, oh, I love this. I've got to do more. I want to do more of this. So I did a little bit of homework. I was very enterprising and found the local musical societies around Bondi, where I lived, and was uh, <laughs> uh, auditioning for them for something. I think, I think it, was, it was a musical, but then it turned into a review because they couldn't do the musical. But in any case, I was cast in the chorus and was outraged <laughs> because I had done a principal role in high school, which was actually in Jesus Christ. Uh, Joseph is a Technicolor Dreamcoat was the first one. Um, and so I realized immediately I had to be better. I had to get better. So I asked the rehearsal pianist if she knew any singing teachers and she said she was a singing teacher. And she lived in the area. So I said, oh, great. Can I, can I come and learn some stuff, whatever it is I need to learn? so that I can do a, a, lead, a more leading role in these things. And she said, sure. So very, very quickly, she said, oh, I think, I think you um, could be an opera singer. And I knew what that was already because of my music class at high school. We'd, uh, we'd been listening to um, the coronation scene from Boris Godunov in music class, which was blew my mind, actually, that, that whole music with all those bells and the big chorus and then Boris comes in and makes his proclamation to the crowd. It's such a great scene. That was my introduction to opera. Uh, so um, uh, we were working away for about a year and during that year she entered me into some sections of the Sydney of Stedford which I won. Well this was very encouraging and uh, was not bad for my robust ego <laughs> already robust ego but earning some dollars for um, oh yes for your talent yes and the way I'd been brought up uh, I saw that already as a kind of a, a, a tiny business where you had to pay an entry fee but if you didn't win a prize that was lost money mm. so I made it my goal to win some money every time and I never I never lost money never lost money doing that I and as the years progressed, over about four years, I did the Stedford, and I just won. As I got older, I got to do the bigger sections, and uh, that ultimately that culminated with me winning the, the. What's it called now? Was the it was the first year when it was the McDonald's aria, right. which had been the Sydney Sun aria, but now I think it's called the McDonald's Opera Scholarship. It's the same prize, yeah, yeah. just has a different, different name. name. Yeah. So it culminated with me winning that. But I won a lot of things along the years, subsequent years, in, including the Melbourne Sun Aria and a bunch of prizes, secondary prizes in the Marianne Marty Scholarship. I didn't win the main one, main prize, but I won that year all the secondary prizes. That must be getting you the attention of um, opera companies and... Um... Sort of. Sort of. Right? Sort of. It's... I was very young, mm -hmm. and they just saw me as a precocious brat. Uh, Opera Australia were not interested in me at all. Are you required at that time, perhaps, then, to go overseas and study? 
uh, that's what ended up happening. But right. I but I was kind of forced into doing that. Yeah, I would have loved nothing but to have been brought into the op- opera Australia, uh, the Australian Opera as it was then fold, but I was not welcomed at all. I worked out of high school. I wanted I wanted to be desperately wanted to be so part of it, but was being kept out. And there was a lot of reasons for that. Um, but be that as it may, I was worked at uh, Opera Australia as a surtitle operator, as a super, as uh, not very too long after, as an extra chorus member. But that was the, that was the limit. And I was also an usher at the Sydney Opera House. So I just, I was immersing myself in that world. And we're talking when I was, uh, let's, let's see, 1987, I was 22. So I was already doing all of that stuff at 19, 18, 19. Um, so, in, sorry, I'm just uh, trying to work out the years. It was about a five-year period yep. where I was just all in. Anyway, could but I was not welcomed as a solo artist at the Australian Opera. I had already, however, done some roles in Queensland at the Opera Company there, because my professional solo debut was in 1988, as a result of winning a contract at the Lyric Opera of Queensland, which was one of those prizes in the Australian Singing Competition. Uh, it was a contract at the Lyric Opera of Queensland. So that contract uh, transpired to be um, to sing Joe in Showboat. Oh, that was another professional musical, wasn't it? But it was a one-off concert. Joe in Showboat um, on the River Stage at World Expo 88. So that was pretty big. Yeah. For a... That happened in 1989. That was pretty big for a 24-year-old. Yeah. Um, Because I think I won the contract the year before in 88. Timing is hazy for me in that period. Because for me, it seemed to take so long. And I look back on it now and it's like, oh, that was a really short cycle. What was I complaining about? (laughs) I'm going, when's this going to (laughs) happen? So a lot of those early roles, because of your your bass voice, were you singing characters that were much older than you? Mm. Well, all those roles are old, old yeah, men. Yeah. That's why people think when they meet a bass who's just normal age, they're shocked because they're playing old men for their whole career. So they're expecting to meet an old man backstage. No, Because that's how composers work. They, they write the bass voice for the, the paternal characters. The, um, yeah, it seems to fit that kind of um, stereotype, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Rogers, or, or, Rogers and Hammerstein had their own uh, stock characters, didn't they, that appeared in every musical? Yes, like Judd Fry, for instance, has a low voice, yeah. and you know, you're probably villains, the villain, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, good stuff. Rockdale Opera, then. Oh, Rockdale Opera was part of my amateur theatre, but quite formative, I guess. Very, uh, yeah, yeah, very. It's the only. It still is the only place where a young opera singer can go and do an opera that isn't at a professional company, and just. Get a feel for it. 1948, that company was established. It's the longest running, I read, the longest running um, opera company in Australia. That's right. And I should, uh, full disclosure, mention that I am the patron of Rockdale Opera Company, which started about five years ago. That has no no administrative involvement. It's a very small operation running on a smell of oil fumes, but, you know. You turn up and cut a ribbon. No, I don't even... I, I, I'll go to see a show if I'm in town or... I, last year I sang in a fundraiser, but um, basically it's to write a program blurb and just offer encouragement. Yeah, yeah. and be there as a great... A, a mentor if required. If required, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah excellent. So, so your career um, eventually takes off and you've performed all around the world in various opera houses. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favourite opera house that you like to... A favorite theater space that you like to, to well that's that's a, those two those two parameters are different right. favorite opera company or favorite theater space don't necessarily coincide yeah yeah fair enough so like the best the best acoustic i ever sang in by far was the teatro colon in buenos aires right. it is as it is better than the legend of it is um 
But as far as uh, an opera company is concerned, I have to say it's one of the worst run I've ever worked for. Mm. Yeah. And uh, it would take a lot to get me to go back there. Right. Yeah. And that says a lot because they pay very, very, very well. And uh, it was just not a pleasant experience. Okay. And I, oh, well, if they're listening, I don't care. <laughs> I'm old now. I can say things like that. <laughs> That's the wonderful thing about getting older, isn't it? <laughs> That that, that uh, you can speak for. Your oh yes, gender. that that certain uh, that certain factor that we won't say in public, when you can give zero of, is yes. uh, <laughs> yeah. very high. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. So uh, the Metropolitan Opera is very nice to work for, um, uh, for a number of reasons. Well, the main reason for me is that it's. Uh, 15 minutes down the street from where I live so it's nice to go and work there in any capacity and uh, they do hire me in many capacities but uh, often invisible you know as an understudy or small role sort of thing but that's easy for me and I just go down and then I can go and sleep in my own bed which is such a, a drag when you're on tour not not having your own stuff around mm. and, uh, Seattle Opera was always a nice place for me to work that, that theatre has a great acoustic and under the previous general, two, two general directors ago, Spate Jenkins, who was running it for 30 years, I think, uh, it was really like a family. And he was like the old style impresario who really cared about what was happening, was totally hands-on and would literally sit in any rehearsal he could and just watch the whole rehearsal and even put in his two cents worth. And that that's how it came along with it. And, uh, that was great experience. Where else? Opera Australia has transpired to be the place where I have sung the most really? over the years. Okay. And I think these roles might be pushing me up into the 30 mark for the number of principal roles I've done here. Over, over well, I made my debut here in 1995. So we're just nearly at 30 years there. But actually, the first thing I did here was an understudy in 1992 as a principal in Simon Bocanegra. Uh, and while, while I was doing that, Moffat Oxenbold had a meeting with me and said, uh, we'd like to hire you for Aida and the Barber of Seville in 1995. And they were my onstage debuts in the principal role. So that's tw 28 years ago, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've done about that many principal roles over the years. Do you have a favorite role? Absolutely. Yeah. Baron Ox in De Rosen Cavalier is my favorite role to perform, hands down. Why so? Because, for better or worse, I am him. Right. Yes. He, he just likes to joke around and be very, very naughty. And he's just a bit of a buffoon, really. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, there's not too much acting required. As I said, for better or worse. Where's the most unusual place that you've sung? Oh, um, you know, outdoor events are very unusual mm. because they're not not acoustic. And well, you appeared on Cockatoo Island last year, of course. I did. In that production of Carmen. I did. Uh, and that was unusual. Although that actually ended up being quite an intimate space, the way they set it up. Really, it was like an outdoor theatre because there were two, two or 3,000 seats maybe 3,000 but it didn't look that big and the stage in fact although big by Australian standards was not that big compared to say the Metropolitan Opera it was about the same size actually mm. and um, that was a but the difficulty there was the the weather it was very windy most days it just wasn't ideal does that play havoc with the voice or do you yeah do you mindful of that? yeah I had a couple of performances where my voice was really not working well at all yeah. and uh I had to take some medications to counteract that just to even get through the shows because the wind, it was cold and windy. So when you're outside and you're sweating in these costumes yeah. and then it's just a, it's just a bad, a bad uh, combination. But the difficulty there was that the orchestra was off in some other room, but we couldn't see or hear them except through the speakers or our earpieces, I should say. And the conductor was on a screen behind the audience on a big screen. We could see him clearly, but there was no direct direct contact. And 
um, there was a lag also with the beat because it's analog well not analog digital digital vision it has a lag whereas old analog TVs don't right. so theatres now have these digital screens and that's really annoying because it's like a quarter of a second behind the sound yeah. so you have to be always thinking like oh uh, I'm behind because if you get behind them then you're really behind mm. yeah any danger with bugs or, or mosquitoes flying things <laughs> uh in that I can't remember actually then no that wasn't an issue there I mean it was really so windy they wouldn't have been able to uh, land anywhere mm. it was, it was, some nights were like <laughs> mini hurricanes it was it was a shame yeah. really and who could have predicted it but I had done a stadium Aida in Australia very early in 1989 uh, at the Sydney Stadium uh, where I was engaged as an understudy for the role of Ramphus and I ended up having to do the fourth uh, unscheduled performance which was a rain date performance um, and that was I call that my international debut at home and only that was only a year after I'd done that thing in Queensland so it was it was a really amazing experience for a young guy to have to perform on on such a a large campus. It was a giant scale, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we had I don't know how many were in the audience, but tens of thousands every night. And uh, well, I did one, but there, there was three, tens of thousands every night. And we, we had elephants. We actually had elephants. It was amazing. And then they took me to do that same production in Tokyo the next year but in the role of the king, which is, although people think it's a more important role because it's called the king, it's actually very much a supporting role. Um, but I got to do that with an even more international cast in Tokyo. And we had 80,000 every night in the Tokyo Dome. That was mind blowing. Wow. So that, I'd say they're my most unusual experiences. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. As an opera singer, you're a, a vocal athlete. Um, and so vocal care must be a great focus for you when you're in performance mode. Um, do you do anything special during your days when you are well, singing that night? Or yeah. how, how do you care for the voice? Well, on the day, you've just got to be quiet and not do too much. And uh, just keep your energy for that night. And, and be hydrated. Hydration is the key. Yeah. Keep your body... Well, drink water all day. Just... It's not for your vocal cords necessarily, but that would be a that would be a knock-on effect of keeping your body hydrated. A lot of people make the mistake of drinking water right before the show. It's too late. If you're if you're dehydrated, that won't work. Mm. Uh, you got to do it all day long, and that's could be perilous in Wagner because you've got to go to the toilet all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a real thing. That's a real issue, you know. So you got, want to know where all the toilets are and if your costumes have zippers and things. Well, true. Yes. True, yeah. You don't want to be you don't want to be in something that you can't get out of quickly. Uh, in your career, you've seen many, many, many opening nights. Yeah. Do you have a, a routine that you go through on opening night or a, a ritual to well, no? No. I guess that leads into superstition. I you, don't. No. No. Absolutely no. not. I'm much more pragmatic than that. And I, you know, I don't want to don't want to uh, disrespect my performing arts colleagues who do do do, do those things. But I, it's, I think it's a bit of a crutch. Yeah. Uh, once again, <laughs> saying your prayers or spinning around three times or whatever—it's it's too late. If you're not ready, mm. you're not ready, mm. and that won't help. It's about it, might, it might make you feel better, but it's not going to actually help. Yeah, yeah, it's about the preparation, isn't it? If, if you've prepared well and know your stuff, you'll be right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do they say? Success is when preparation and opportunity meet. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Or if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Yeah. That's another one. I like those. Yeah, they're great. Or my brother, who's a builder, says, failing to plan is planning to fail. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All true, all true. Yes. You should write a book. I don't know if people would be interested in that. <laughs> I'll sell dozens of copies. Dozens. To dozens. my mother. <laughs> do you read reviews? Yes. Yeah? You yes. Do? Yeah. I do. Do you place much importance in them? Or? Well, you know, some of them are very upsetting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, but 
if you've chosen to read them, you've got to take that. But it's still only one person's opinion. And they don't pay my bills. Yeah. But some reviews can be very damaging. Um, that's why I like to read them. I like to know what's coming. You know, the fallout or whatever. But that, the bad ones happened, you know, as you're developing. I, I am glad to say I get less of those now. Do you remember any of the bad ones? Oh. Can you quote any of them? Yes, yeah. I can indeed. Yeah. The worst one was after a production I did of Die Frau on a Schatten in the Hamburg State Opera, which was with Simone Young. The review, I mean, there were a lot of political forces happening, which is a very long story. And if you ever meet me, I'll tell you the whole story, people, um, if you could be bothered. But anyway, let's just say there was, I think, set up a whole um, journalistic uh, bombardment against that production and Simone Young and her people who she'd brought in from Australia and Britain mainly. And uh, that was not seen in good light at all and so we all copped it and a certain person at that opera company had engineered these bad reviews and it was clear if you read them all one after the other they all had identical talking points in the reviews like they'd been given a list of things to say things that reviewers never know to say because reviewers are generally amateurs as well or wannabes and uh, not all generally and they don't know the technical terminology so when there's a, re a review full of technical terminology you know someone's told them stuff right so this, this was one of those in the review in the um, Zurich newspaper because it had like 25 reviews this production said what a sh I was uh, this is 2007 so I was 42 was it right 42 years old said what a shame for one so I, I will never forget it this is the english translation what a shame for one so young that his voice seems so irreparably damaged oh. yeah unforgettable right yeah absolutely yes yeah. well uh, swiss people who wrote that review i've been managing for the last 16 years pretty well with that irreparably damaged voice yeah so you've you've, you've done pretty well yeah. And now you're playing God. Vulcan. Yes, and I'm going to smite those people. Absolutely. <laughs> you have the power. I know. You have the power. Uh, now, Xi Zheng, your director, has envisaged a digital ring. Yeah. Uh, which is very exciting. I, I, it is. On the Opera Australia website, there's a lovely little uh, interview and some um, design uh, aspects of, of the production. Uh, it's very exciting. Because uh, we will, as an audience, be able to be uh, transported to all of those magical places um, um yes constellations and uh, well yes you know what yeah we don't know you don't know because i said to him he's a lovely lovely man by the way i said to him could i please know what's happening behind me so i can become part of that story world and he said it's a mystery and i said oh you haven't done it yet <laughs> I'm sure he has. I said, you've had four years. <laughs> he laughed, uh, but he won't tell us. He's giving us a vague idea. What we're doing on the stage is absolutely singer-friendly. We're just almost at this point. Details will come. We're only three weeks in. Mm -hmm. Details will come. But at the moment, we're more or less being allowed to stand there and deliver a fantastic concert to the audience. Yeah. And the stuff will happen around us. That's why I wanted to know what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, blocking of a production is done in drafts, isn't it? You sort of block one. Well, then, you do. Then the, you add layers. You do the geography. Yeah, yeah. Well, the choreography. Geography. Mm. You go here. You go there. Then it's the, the then the lighting designer hopefully lights you, mm. and um, yeah, and then you put in details. Each time you repeat it, you put in the details. Now, in a, in a normal opera rehearsal process, you get that repetition very soon after you've blocked it. With Wagner, there are so many scenes. You don't get to a scene again for two or three weeks. So you need to be on the ball and remember what you did last time. Even if it was simple, you can't be going, oh, can we stop? What did I do last time? You've got to remember. Because it's an entirety. It's 15 hours, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, and each scene, 
more or less, is 20 minutes long. Mm. And you might get three in, a, three in an act. Mm. Yeah, and there's three acts. So you get nine scenes, nine long scenes um, in an opera. And there's four operas. So what's that? 36 scenes. So that, hence, starting rehearsal in late September for a December production. Well, this, uh, you, we have six weeks here in the studio in Sydney before we transfer to Brisbane. We're now coming to the end of the third week. Um, it's, a, it, it's actually a very short period. If you think about six weeks, that's one and a half weeks per opera. Mm. So there's not, a lot, there's not a lot of time to really, to really get under it. So we've all got to be on the ball. Mm. And we are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, December and uh, at the Lyric Theatre in Queensland. You've obviously sung in Queensland before, so it would be nice to be back. I sang there several times in the late 80s. The first thing I mentioned earlier was on an outdoor event. Oh, that was another outdoor event. Okay. Thank you for reminding me of that, <laughs> self. Uh, <laughs> um, um, so, yes, I sang several things at Lyric Opera of Queensland in the late 80s and early 90s. And... Um, then I did not return to Brisbane until, I, uh, I can't remember if it was two, 2012, I think, I, which is already 11 years ago, I did for the Queensland Festival, the Brisbane, no, Queensland Festival? Brisbane International Festival, yeah. Bluebeard's Castle with the Queensland Symphony Orchestra. And I hadn't been there for 20 years. Oh. And it was remarkably changed and grown up. So I'm really looking forward to see how it is even more grown up with another 11 years in between. I haven't been there since. It's not somewhere I go. Yeah. I don't like the heat. So uh, I'm dreading summer in Brisbane, honestly. <laughs> uh, thank goodness the indoor part of my contribution will be air conditioned. Lovely. Yes. Well, Daniel Schumeg. <laughs> we best Egan. <laughs> <laughs> we best get you into the rehearsal room. Um, thank you for this conversation. It's been lovely. Um, and it's lovely to meet you and uh, all the best for the ring. Thank you so much. And that hour just whizzed by. Whiz. I got it. Huh? Whiz, whiz. <laughs> whizzed by. <laughs> whizzed by. Thank you. Thanks so much. Celebrated director Chen Shi Zheng explores Wagner's legendary tale through a futuristic lens. His global vision imagines a parallel universe where many cultures walk together. Towering, moving digital panels create an immersive virtual world. Astonishing costumes and props imagine an unknown future. French conductor Philippe Owin has conducted The Ring Cycle more than a dozen times. He leads a cast of international stars and some of Australia's most accomplished performers to bring you the memorable music of The Ring Cycle. Wagner's Ring Cycle is presented by Opera Australia and plays the Queensland Performing Arts Centre from December 1st to 21st, 2023. Thanks for joining us in this episode of The Stages Podcast. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. Stages.